Well, it's a joy to be able to come and break the word and break bread together uh, today. I count it a great privilege to stand before you, my brothers and sisters at Faith Baptist Church. We will be going to 1 Corinthians 10 in our Bibles. And in considering uh, what to uh, bring before the congregation here this morning, before we partake of the Lord's table, um, I went through the scriptures and just wanted to find more and wanted to understand more of this great time and to understand it better. And so as I went to the New Testament passages, um, I want to share with you what I've gleaned. Let's go to the Lord first in prayer. Lord, we want to commit our time to you. We pray, Lord, that you would focus our hearts. Uh, Lord, this is a time that we have set aside in our schedules to gather with your people. Uh, Lord, we make up your church, uh, that we come together and we, on the first day of the week, when Jesus rose from the dead, and remember that sacrifice that he made for us. And we also uh, join together in bearing one another's burdens and considering one another. And Lord, we must grow in both of these tasks, both of these focus. And so, Lord, I pray that you would draw our hearts to uh, this message from your word. Uh, Lord, help us to take it to heart and to practice it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So one of the questions I can remember uh, was, what is so important about communion? Uh, We're taking time, and we take time regularly to consider communion or the Lord's uh, Supper. And so the Lord's Supper, certainly we usually go to Corinthians chapter 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, which gives us good information. Uh, Paul uh, takes what Jesus said back in Matthew or in the Gospels, Matthew 26, 6, and uh, he really institutes that for the church. He, He reiterates that, that that is something we are to continue in as a body of believers. So the Lord's Supper, here in our passage, in verse 16, 10 16, it's called communion. Uh, it's also been referred to as Eucharist, and maybe we've heard that mainly in relation to maybe Catholicism, but actually that word is just a Greek term for the giving of thanks before partaking. So it's not a wrong word to refer to it, to give thanks. In one sense, we do that every time we ask the blessing. We give thanks to the Lord. But this term, there's a term that comes up over and over again, especially in Acts. If you keep your finger in 1 Corinthians and go back to Acts 2, Acts 2, 42. Acts 2, 42. My readers on here it says uh, this was as the church was growing, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in the breaking of bread, 
and in prayers. And so in the breaking of bread is that Lord's table, the communion. If you go to verse 46, just down from that, so continued daily in one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. In uh, chapter 20 of Acts, uh, we get, it's referred to again, uh, just getting some 20, verse 7. It says, Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until night. But here they came together to break bread. And in that same chapter, in verse 11, it says, Now when he had come up, had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even until daybreak, he departed. So I'm not going to speak that long like Paul did. But uh, we do see that uh, the breaking of bread becomes a normal mode of a church. In fact, we would call it an ordinance of the church. One of the marks of a church is that it would remember this, remember Christ through communion. And what's the other one? Baptism, that's right. That here, uh, they came together, those who believed were baptized, and they broke bread. They shared the Lord's Supper. So it was instituted uh, by Jesus before his crucifixion, before his burial, before his resurrection. That tells us a few things and some errors today when we think about it is since Jesus had not died, communion is not this taking the form of Jesus' body that's broken and blood that's shed. Uh, had not been done. So transubstantiation, which is a, view, a false view of this, would not be true. Or the consubstantiation, which means this would just be in the place of. So neither of those are because Jesus had not broken his body yet. It had not happened yet. This was in the commemoration. And so we're to, to observe this. So we're to remember this uh, until he comes again. So something else just... Uh, I want to bring, there's two main points to this, okay? One is in this passage, uh, communion is, is, is a major point, that is, uh, to understand what it is. But then there's a strong warning in this passage that uh, when we study 2 Corinthians 11, comes out pretty clear, but 2 Corinthians 10, sometimes it gets overlooked. But here, as we understand, communion is a spiritual experience, okay? Uh, Christ, here, he died once. He's not being re-sacrificed every time we take communion. He died once and then uh, for all. So his body, we would hear believers partake of communion in faith. Believers partake of communion in faith. And the Holy Spirit uses that to make us sensitive in an awareness of our relationship to God and our relationship to others. We're going to see that this becomes a theme 
What is important to us is to what? Love God with all of our heart and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And we see that communion is a constant ordinance that drives us to this. It unifies Christians. In fact, uh, communion unifies Christians. The, the term communion, is the root of that is koinonia, which we often use as the fellowship of believers. It's having things in common to participate with, to have partnership with. And so this communion is a coming together, uh, the same word as those called into the fellowship of his son in, uh, in the same letter, 1 Corinthians 1.9, uh, the fellowship of the Spirit, the fellowship or the koinonia of his sufferings, the koinonia or the partnership in the support of the saints. And so this term is used over and over again. So this is not an uncommon, the term common is not uncommon. And so we properly share in communion. So we spiritually participate in the fellowship of Jesus Christ and with one another. This is a, a time of coming together, a time of family unity within the church. Uh, it is a symbol. Certainly, this is one of the main, this is the main institution that Jesus uh, instituted for us, the church. Uh, the family kind of shadows that, and without getting into too much detail, we ought to also have times of coming together and having unity within our families, and our fathers are to be leading that. It is much, here, this is much more of a symbol. It is a profound celebration of this. And so we engage. It is a unifying thing. So in the context of understanding more about communion in chapters 10 and 11, Paul, let's go to this passage, Paul brings a warning to us. And it strikes at the root of our preparation for communion. In verse, uh, chapter 10, First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14, it says, Therefore, my beloved, he's talking to believers, flee from idolatry. I speak as to the wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body. For we all participate in the one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who ate of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then, that an idol is anything, or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather, the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to a demon and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. Verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? 
At first glance, we would relegate this idolatry and uh, the cup of demons to something far from us. Uh, Ancient, possibly. Uh, Paul, before he says this, he says, therefore, he has established something. He has established that there were three things in the previous context that were black and white issues. They were sin. One was idolatry, immorality, and complaining against God. Those, there are gray areas. He'll talk about some of those, but these things are not gray areas. And he comes now here and we live in a pagan culture, even though we would say Christian, you know, uh, USA, we live in America, we are uh, celebrating American holidays even today or commemorances, Memorial Day, we remember those who have fallen in battle. We partake in many customs within our culture, and while we might refer to them as pagan, some of them may have influences of Christianity, but some of them certainly do not. And he's not saying that uh, in the context here that we would not uh, be in the world and be involved in the activities of the world, but we would not make those lusts, those heart desires, our heart. We do not share those same desires. And we're going to get into that One of the ways we understand this that is true in our culture, idolatry is not old and outdated. Romans 1, 21, just earlier, 121 expresses this. And it says, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and foolish and their hearts were darkened. Did you hear that? Their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. The birds, the four-footed animals, creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lusts of their hearts. That's a key phrase to dishonor their bodies among themselves, to exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. There's some key, key current truth for us to take in in our fleeing. He says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. As we would prepare for communion, Let us take inventory. Let us be sensitive to areas that we may need to flee, to recognize, to repent, and to replace God in his proper place in our lives. He's certainly talking to his beloved. Paul says, uh, I love you. (laughs) You're part of the beloved of God. But here you're to get away from something. You're to run from this, stay away, avoid at all costs. There's an urgency for us. And we're to go from it, move away from this. But he says idolatry. Let us learn something about what idolatry is. What is it? 
Is it just an Old Testament term for ancient times where people bowed to fashioned images? Well, to learn about what I, this, I would say let's make it personal. How do I identify idolatry in me? Okay? How do I identify idolatry that resides in me? So idolatry, first of all, replaces the true God. Okay? And that may sound foreign, but let's bring it home. We know that God prohibited idolatry. Commandment one, right? Uh, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. By the way, Jesus said, you'll love one and hate the other. But showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. That's Exodus 20, 3 through 6. And just later, Exodus 34 says, You shall not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. He's exclusive. <laughs> it's not, let's add God to my list of pantheon. We are not uh, just adding him as something that uh, we can uh, grab when needed to serve me. And here we are going to get to the root of idolatry. And that is, do we serve God or does God serve us? My glory will not, I will not give to another, God says in Isaiah 48, 11. Idolatry is personally engaging in worship to something other than the true God in a true way. We don't have time to look at all the places in Scripture where people even worship God in a false way and God was not pleased. It is having any false God. And here's where we get into our lives. A false God could be an object, yes, a graven image, but it can also be an idea, something that has, we have put up in our minds, a philosophy, a habit, an occupation, a sport, or whatever that has one's primary concern and loyalty. Or that to any degree decreases one's trust and loyalty to Yahweh, to Lord. So what in our life have we allowed to take priority? To take away the glory from God and put it on ourselves, to put it on someone else? David Powelson says, what are the idols or false gods in what do you place your trust or set your hopes? Is it your job? Is it your spouse? 
Is it your country? What do you turn to or seek? Where do you take refuge when you're in trouble? Who do you go to? Who is your savior, your judge, your controller, your provider, your protector in your world? Whom do you serve? What voice controls you? What things usurp God? As we grow in our thinking, let us think about this, process this in our mind, change our orientation. The term idol is to that to which we give loyalty. The voices you listen to mimic specific characteristics of God to replace God in your life. What are we exposing ourselves to? What are we taking in in our world? Satan cannot enter our minds and put thoughts. We allow them in. We welcome them in. We look at them. We listen to them. So we need to start to trace out the details of everyday life. And it will help us to address these as we mature. Point number two under this is idolatry is something that rules my heart. What is ruling my heart? Paul Tripp says an idol of the heart is anything that rules me other than God. Why did I say that? Why did I do that? Man, I regret that. Well, why did I do it? What am I listening to? What drum is beating that I'm marching to? Brad Bigney, a pastor near uh, Cincinnati, says, An idol is anything that you're willing to sin to get and willing to sin if you don't. Which means when I sin, when I find myself sinning, the red flags have been waving. I need to ask myself, what did I want? What am I after? What am I serving? This is not a new thing. And I know I'm having you flip a little bit, but Ezekiel, and this might be a harder one for some to find, but Ezekiel in the Old Testament, in fact, I might even have trouble. There it is, okay. Ezekiel 14, it's the longer of the prophetic books. If you remember, the bigger prophetic books are early and the shorter ones are later. That's how they're arranged. So Ezekiel is a large one, so it's towards the beginning. Ezekiel 14. It's very interesting. Uh, We learned something about Ezekiel in speaking about the idols of the people that relates to us. 14, 1 through 8, it says, Now some of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts and put them before them that which causes them to stumble into iniquity. Should I let myself be inquired of all by them? 
Therefore speak to them and say to them, Thus saith the Lord God, Every one of the house of Israel who sets up his idols in his heart and puts before him what causes him to stumble into iniquity and then comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him who comes according to the multitude of his idols. In other words, there's a multitude of idols we can set up in our hearts that I may seize the house of Israel by their heart because they are estranged from me by their idols. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus saith the Lord God, repent, turn away from your idols, and turn your faces away from all your abominations. For anyone of the house of Israel or of strangers who dwell in Israel who separates himself from me and sets up his idols in his heart and puts before him what causes him to stumble into iniquity and then comes to a prophet to inquire of him concerning me, I, the Lord, will answer him by myself. I will set my face against that man and make him a sign and a proverb. I will cut him off from the midst of my people then you shall know that I am the Lord. The key in that passage is that the idolatry is in the heart. It's not in the image. Idolatry is not an Old Testament before Christ problem. It is mentioned nearly 30 times in the New Testament. John writes in his letters At the end, he says here, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. 1 John 5.21 Dave Pallison uh, writes also, Who or what rules my behavior? The Lord or a substitute? Idolatry is the characteristic and the summary of the Old Testament drift from God. Idolatry is a drift from God from God, away from God. But interestingly, in the New Testament, it merges the concept of idolatry and the concept of an inordinate, life-ruling desire. Idolatry becomes a problem of the heart, a metaphor of human lust, craving, yearning, greedily demanding that I must have it. It's insatiable. So this is idolatry rules the heart. Idolatry replaces the true God. Idolatry rules the heart. And idolatry, I want us to think in this process, I'm going to be landing this very quickly. We're going to say the message and we're go right into our communion here. But this last point is important. Idolatry serves the desires of my heart. Idolatry serves the desires. Why did the people move into idolatry? It's because that idol gave them what they wanted. They wanted it so bad that they would move towards it. Why do we pursue idols? Because they give us what we want. I know. I'm going to go to another place here. Jeremiah is another one of my favorite prophets. 
Jeremiah, and I didn't go far enough, Isaiah, Jeremiah, right, Jeremiah, Jeremiah 44, and verse 16, says, And then all the men who knew their wives and burned incense to other gods, with all the women who stood by, a great multitude, and all the people who dwelt in the land of Egypt, and of Pathros, and answered Jeremiah, saying, As for the word that you spoke unto us in the name of the Lord, we will not listen to you, but we will certainly do whatever has gone out of our own mouths to burn incense to the queen of heaven, to pour out drink offerings to her. As we have done, we and our fathers our kings and our princes, our cities of Judah in the, in the streets of Jerusalem. For then we had plenty of food when we did that. We were well off. We had no trouble when we burned incense to her. But since we stopped burning, verse 18, since we stopped burning incense to the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we have lacked everything and have been consumed by the sword and by the famine. Why did they keep going? Because God was trying to teach them a lesson that they did not want to learn, to depend on him. If they gave in to these things, they would be fed. If they gave in to these things, they would have security. And that's what they wanted. Hosea does the same thing, but we're not going to go there. It demonstrates that they worship their idols that they received, when they worshiped those idols, they received the things that they wanted. The false gods of the ancient world were utilitarian. They provided. And I'm going to say it's not any different today. Heath Lambert writes, Idols serve a very pragmatic function of meeting the needs and desires that God's people believe he has left unmet. They did not seek to learn from God about their need and to trust him for his provisions. Idol worship flows out of a primary problem of worship of self. I want this and I must have it. So in our process of thinking here, the heart wants what the heart wants. The root of every sin, my sin, is fundamentally an unwarranted desire to exalt myself above all other considerations, God or my neighbor. The great commandment says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. All sinful people will desire to manipulate others into service instead of seeking to selflessly serve others. We want to be served. This is the opposite of what God wants us to consider as we come to the table, to be unified, to come in community, to share with one another. 
Communion and idolatry are juxtaposed. They are opposite. We're to flee this. Even Jonah says, Jonah 1.8 says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. So what should we do? I think Paul and others have written about this, and that definitely is we need to recognize Guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it flows the issues of life. Our self-exalting heart needs to be, the Bible says, uh, those lusts need to be mortified, put to death. In my life, if I am not putting to death my own desires, my own wishes, my own ambitions in little things, I'm going to have difficulty in big things. So therefore, what? We may fast. We limit. One of the things I love about the safe house is those guys come in there and they've given full vent to all their passions and fleshly desires, and they have to say no in the little things in life. You can't do that. You have to say no. You can't give in and do what you want. You have to do what is right and good. That's self-control. Saying no to selfish desires for what is right and good. And parents, we teach our kids that. That's a valuable principle that we teach our kids, saying no to selfish desires. Don't serve yourself because of what is right and good. So search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting, Psalm 139. So we need to recognize this, recognize it in our lives. Ask the questions. There's so many questions we could ask here. What am I willing to sin to get or because I don't have it? What makes me most happy? What makes me most sad? You know, the affections of the heart The affections of the heart are simply what fills my mind affects me. And so what what are you characterized by? What emanates from you? You know, when they come up next to you, what is it all about you? Is it all about your agenda, your ambition? Or is it about pleasing the Lord and loving my neighbor? Submitting myself to the Lord. Submitting myself to my neighbor. So we recognize this and then we repent. Put to death your members. Colossians, Paul says in Colossians, he says, put to death your members which are on the earth. Fornication, you mentioned that. Uncleanness, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Coveting, wanting, self-exalting heart. I must have. The flow is coming in. I like to say when I'm struggling here and say, I need to be, if you will, giving worship to God, not seeking worship for my own heart. How am I blessing the Lord, giving him glory? How am I serving others and giving? Uh, Safe House, like says, are we a producer or are we a consumer? Right? Are we consuming or are we 
producing good works for the glory of the Lord. So we repent, we turn. Repentance is a turn. Say the same thing God does about it in our confession. God, this is what you say, and I believe you, and I repent. And by Jesus Christ, we can be forgiven again and again. We can be forgiven. God's grace is greater than all of our sin. If we say we have no sin, we lie. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And in Colossians, he doesn't end with just putting to death, but he says that we're to put on, we are to put on what pleases God. And I love what he says in Colossians also. We'll end with this capstone of a passage. Colossians 1, 16 through 18. says, For by him, Jesus Christ, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. For he is before all things, and in him all things consist, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence, that he may be first. Is God first? As we come to the table this morning, if God is not first, you're not prepared. You're not ready. There's nothing stopping you from the grace that God provides. He enables us to put him first in our life today. Let's go to the Lord. Dear God, I'm so thankful that you have provided everything we need for life and for godliness. I'm so thankful, dear God, that in you, you provide everything. And I pray that those that are here this morning that have allowed a pagan culture to influence them into seeking that which doesn't satisfy, to look into those areas that our substitutes, our poor substitutes, our demonic substitutes, to take us away from true worship before you. I pray, Lord, that we would confess that right now. Lord, may, may you speak in hearts and that we would confess the areas that we have put before you And we have determined to walk in that way and not your way. Forgive us, dear God, by Jesus Christ. Jesus bore that sin of idolatry on the cross. And forgiveness is is extended through that grace. And I pray, Lord, that we might all be able to join in Holy communion, your communion. It's holy because it's yours. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.